0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. There's a a story of two old friends who bumped into each other on the street one day and one of them looked so distraught, almost on the verge of tears, and his friend asked, what has the world done to you? And the fellow said, well, let me tell you, three weeks ago, an uncle died and left me $40,000. The guy said, that's a lot of money. He said, but you see, two weeks ago, a cousin I had never met died and left me $85,000 free and clear. He goes, sounds like you've been blessed. And he goes, you don't understand. Last week, my great aunt passed away, and she left me almost a quarter of a million dollars in inheritance. And now this guy's just totally confused. And he says, then why do you look so unhappy? To which the friend replied, this week, nothing. (laughs) Picture of entitlement, right? But it doesn't always need to be that big. I mean, that's a huge example. I know in my own life, it can creep in, in these small things. I come to expect certain things, right? When the water main breaks on my street, And we're without water for a short amount of time, I get upset. I deserve water. When there's a storm and we lose power, I'm entitled to be the first customer with power restored. When my Wi-Fi drops, you better believe Comcast owes me that to get it fixed, and I'm entitled to speak to their customer service however I want. And when I go to the store, Meyer owes me to open up another line. (laughs) I deserve it. I mean, these things creep in, though, right? Like, there's just all of us struggle with this because in our human tendencies, we slip into an attitude of entitlement. And just so we're all on the same page, when I say the word entitlement, what I mean, if you're following in your notes, is the belief that we inherently deserve privileges or special treatments, or that we have the right to something. That's what I mean by entitlement. And all of us struggle with this, all of us. For high identification purposes, let me give you a few more examples. I've noticed these in my own life. Maybe you can relate to them. I'm entitled to watch whatever I want, visit any website I want, read or look at any sort of magazine I want because they're my eyes. I'm a good mom. I work hard to keep the house clean. I deserve to have a nicer, bigger home. I'm entitled to yell at my kids because I'm in authority over them. I'm entitled to treat my body however I want because it's my body. I work hard all day, so I should be able to come home and have time to myself at the expense of my spouse and children. I take care of the kids all day, so I'm entitled to pass the kids off to my spouse as soon as she, he or she gets home. I worked hard for years, I'm entitled to do whatever I want when I retire. I'm entitled to vent my emotions to people around me if it helps me feel better. I'm entitled to be rude to store clerks or service people if I feel I've received poor service. I'm entitled to more pay so I'm not going to work hard at my job. Now listen, we all have these rights. These are rights we all have. It's just not always beneficial to use them. Steve put it so well last week. He said, be careful how you view your rights. And that's because these rights can easily create in us an attitude of entitlement. And if left unchecked, entitlement leads to some dark places. If you're following in your notes, the only outcome from entitlement is dissatisfaction and unhappiness. That's the only outcome. It is an idol that will promise us everything, and it will only deliver dissatisfaction and unhappiness. Entitlement leads to, if you're following in your notes, three things. Pride. It leads to pride. We become deserving, and everyone's in our debt. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He calls pride the great sin, and he writes this. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And so, friends, if pride is the root of every sin, entitlement is the root of pride. Entitlement is the root of pride. The second place entitlement leads us an inability to be thankful, it steals our joy. It creates an inability to be thankful. Have you ever noticed in your life, if we believe we're owed something, we, we will not be thankful for it because we're entitled to it. It steals our joy. It steals our thankfulness. And the third place entitlement leads us is broken relationships. Broken relationships, if you're following your notes. It turns us against others, even God. We become takers instead of givers, and we have a you owe me attitude, and this happens in our relationships here, and it happens in our relationship with the Lord. And so let me say it again, the bad news, the only outcome entitlement leads to is dissatisfaction and unhappiness. And I know that from experience. As I was preparing this week, I thought of two particular times in my life when entitlement created dissatisfaction and unhappiness. It just went unchecked. One was in my parenting. I wore some rose-colored glasses as a parent and pridefully felt like I was entitled, and you can laugh at this in a second, I pridefully felt like I was entitled to have kids who behaved, respected me, and never talked back to me. I deserved that. They owed me that for all I did for them. And what that did is it put unrealistic expectations on them as kids and me as a parent. And the longer I lived with this entitled belief, the more unhappy and dissatisfied I became. I missed the good things that I could be thankful for, and I focused on what was wrong. It stole my joy. It stole my joy. The other time I thought about where attitude, my attitude of entitlement led to a dark time was uh, about five, five and a half years ago after our daughters died. I don't think I ever thought of myself as having a you owe me attitude with God. But I found myself saying things like, God, I deserved better than that. I'm a good person. You owe me a better outcome. I played the good person card. I'm entitled to healthy children. And what that you owe me attitude did is it created a broken relationship between me and God for a season. Bitterness and resentment crept in and I found myself dissatisfied and unhappy with God. It can take us places we don't want to go if we're not careful. But the good news that I have for you today, if you're following on your notes, the good news is Jesus offers a better way He offers us a better way of life than living with this attitude of entitlement. It's a life that can be marked with gratefulness and thankfulness, joy, healthy relationships, and freedom from the bondage of trying to feed the idol of entitlement. There is a better way to live. And we're in a series called A Better Way. We're studying the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament Last week, Steve began a new section of the book in chapter 8, and it's going to take us all the way through chapter 10. It deals with personal rights. Personal rights. And chapter 8 could be summarized by saying this, just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean we should go ahead and do it. Doesn't mean we should go ahead and do it. And today in chapter 9, Paul continues the conversation about rights, but he makes it very personal. He's going to use a personal example. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I want to invite you to open to the book of 1 Corinthians. You might be used to where that is by now, but if you're not, it's about two-thirds of the way back in the New Testament. Go past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You'll come to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Highly encourage you to take one of those out and follow along. Some confusing scripture we're going to look at. Uh, at first glance, so it might do you good to write some notes or or circle things. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 can be found on page 928, 928 of those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. So here's what's going on in Corinth. I want to paint a picture for you of the culture, because I think we need to understand the culture of Corinth to understand what Paul's writing. And so during this time, about 60 AD, the, the world in which Paul ministered had been overrun by teachers and preachers who were charlatans and opportunists, and they were in it for the money. The market was flooded with all kinds of philosophical and religious claims, each peddled by teachers who wanted to be paid for access to their ideas. So they would go to Corinth, they'd go to Philippi, they'd go to Thessalonica, they'd go to Ephesus, they'd go to Rome and share their enlightened ideas with people and expect to be paid handsomely in return. And so these itinerant philosophers and religious teachers supported themselves in one of four ways. They either charged a fee, they lived in well-to-do households, many times of church members, they begged, or they worked a trade. And the last of these, the working a trade, was least common, but it gave the teacher the greatest freedom to teach however they liked. And this fourth way is what Paul chose to do. He worked a trade, he was a tent maker, So knowing that Paul worked a trade and he would not accept their money, some people in the church started slandering Paul and saying he did not have the same authority as these other teachers and preachers coming into town. It's into that context that we have to read chapter 9. So beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, would you read this with me in the first gray box in your notes? Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Chapter 9 opens with four rhetorical questions, all of which expect an affirmative answer. The answer to each of these is yes. So Paul asks the first question, am I free? Yes, I'm not beholden to you. I'm working a trade. Paul asks, am I an apostle? Yes. And so that we all know what an apostle is, if you're following on your notes, an uh, apostle is a messenger commissioned to carry out the instructions of the commissioning agent. It's an ambassador. They speak on behalf of somebody else. Paul introduces himself as an apostle in every book he writes except for Philippians and 2 Thessalonians. Why does he do this? It's answered in the next rhetorical question Have I not seen the Lord? Yes. In Acts 9, we read about this last week in the New Testament Bible reading plan. Paul had a complete life change when he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we can see this on the screen. It says, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man Paul is my chosen instrument to pro- proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Paul had seen Jesus, and he was a messenger commissioned by Jesus. He was an apostle. And so Paul's last question is, surely I'm an apostle to you? Yes, is the answer. He reminds the church in Corinth that their church was planted by him. He planted their church, and he was the first person to tell them about Jesus. He was their father in the faith. And Paul concludes by reminding the Corinthians that they are his seal of apostleship. I want to put a picture on the screen for you so we can understand the importance of this language. In ancient times, seals were used to indicate the authenticity of what was inside, like a letter from a king. A king's seal on a letter indicated the authenticity of what was inside the envelope. The seal was the official representation of the authority of the one who sent the letter. Each king had a different seal. And what was under the seal was guaranteed to be genuine. So the Corinthian church was a living seal of Paul's apostleship. They were proof of his genuineness as an apostle. And in these first two verses, Paul is reestablishing his credibility as an apostle. It's like Paul saying, just because I won't take your money doesn't mean I'm not an apostle. I am. And in verse 3, if you're following in your Bibles, Paul goes on and he says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers in Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Verse 3 introduces legal language. Paul knows he's being put on trial, he's being examined, and we're getting ready to see how Paul is going to defend himself, beginning in verse 7. And beginning in verse 7, Paul begins a five-tiered defense about why he has the right to be paid for his ministry, but why he turns it down. Number one, if you're following Paul's first defense, in your notes, ordinary practice. It's ordinary practice. Verse 7 says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Right on this Memorial Day weekend, we're reminded of the military. No soldier has to provide his own provisions. His upkeep is provided for him as part of his wages. Every farmer who works on a vineyard can expect to eat some of its fruit, and a shepherd can expect to drink some of the milk produced by the flock. It's expected payment. These are ordinary practices just like being paid for ministry is what Paul's communicating. Number two, the second defense that Paul issues is its scriptural precedent. Its scriptural precedent. Verses eight to 10 in your Bible say, "'Do I say this merely on human authority? "'Doesn't the law say the same thing? "'For it is written in the law of Moses, "'do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain.'" Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. I want to put another picture on the screen for you just to give us an imagination of how farming was done in biblical times. These are oxen threshing the grain. They would walk in circles and stomp on it to separate the wheat from the chaff. We still, you can still see this in Ethiopia and many third world countries today. This is how they farm. And what Paul is saying here, this is a lighter, heavier argument. Paul is saying Deuteronomy, the Mosaic law, stated when an ox was working and walking around that circle to thresh out the grain, an animal had every right... To eat some of the food he was threshing. Had every right. So, in a lighter and heavier argument, if something is true on a lower scale like animals, then it's certainly true in a more important higher scale. So, if animals were given the right to eat as they worked, certainly human beings created in the image of God have the same right. Scriptural precedent. The third defense Paul uses is common sense. He's saying, this is common sense. In verses 11 and 12 in chapter 9, Paul writes, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And Paul goes right back into another lighter, heavier argument he says if something is true on a human physical scale then it must certainly be true on a spiritual scale. So if farmers can expect to gain their food and support from working the fields at harvest, certainly church workers and missionaries should expect the same as they gain a spiritual harvest. Lighter heavier argument. And then look look really close here in your bibles at the second half of verse 12. Paul kind of just slides this into his defense. He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He just kind of slides that statement in. He's kind of saying, we have the right to financial support because it's ordinary practice. It's scriptural precedent. It makes common sense. But I'm not using this right because I don't want to hinder the gospel. We're going to come back to that in verse 15 and hit that really hard, but he's just kind of easing into that and throwing it in here in the second half of verse 12. He picks back up in verse 13 with his fourth argument of why he is deserving to be paid. And if you're following your notes, the fourth argument is religious custom. It's religious custom, he says. If you're following in verse 13, Paul writes, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple?" and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar. And what Paul is doing here is he's referencing the Old Testament, Leviticus 2 and 7, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 18, and he cites verses that instruct how priests and Levites were to receive their support as they ministered in the temple. He's saying it's, it's your religious custom to do this. And the fifth command, commandment, fifth, uh, defense Paul gives. If you're following in your notes, it's Jesus' command. It's Jesus' command. In verse 14, we read, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And for this, we can go to Matthew 10.10 or Luke 10.7. I listed those in your notes. And these verses come from when Jesus sent out disciples on mission trips. He gave instructions that those proclaiming the gospel should get their daily needs met from those whom they stayed and to whom they ministered. So Paul wants to make it quite clear, not for his own benefit, but for all Christian workers after him, that announcing the good news of Jesus is an activity that deserves the material support of those who benefit from it. And it's right here where I I say time out and I step away from this message and I just address you as a church family and I say thank you for doing this. Thank you for supporting your pastors and the staff so well. Not just financially and materially but prayerfully you encourage us. We celebrate friendships with you. You live this out. And it needs to be said, we are grateful for it. We're thankful for your support. We really are. And so Paul finishes this defense of his apostleship and the rights that he has an apostle to be paid. And he says in verses 15 to 18, and I'm going to have you read with me the first part of 15, and then I'll continue reading if you follow along in your Bibles. Read this with me in the second grade box in your notes. Paul says, But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast." For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Paul had just given five reasons why he had the right to be paid. And then he says, but I've used none of them. I haven't used any of them. If you're following in your notes, Paul did not take advantage of his rights. Even though he had the right to earn a living from the gospel ministry, he chose to surrender this for a greater good. And the greater good, if you're following in your notes again, Paul gave up his rights for the good of others and the gospel. That's the greater good. It's the good of others and the gospel, so that the name of Jesus might advance. Now, context is king here. And and so I want us all to see this. Paul knew if he took the money, if he took the money, the good news of Jesus would have immediately been associated with the fake teachers. Remember, we said this at the beginning of the message that Corinth was filled with soothsayers and opportunists who taught just for the money. And if Paul took the money... Some people would have shied away from following Jesus because they would have suspected that it came with strings attached. And Paul sought to avoid any impression that he was only preaching to acquire support. He didn't want there to be any barriers to the good news of Jesus. No barriers. His main concern in life was that people would hear the good news of Jesus and follow him and... He did not want the way he lived his life to be a distraction. Paul had the right to receive this financial support, but so the Corinthians might grow in their faith, Paul chose to give up that right. He gave it up. He lived out what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 8-9. Steve shared this last week, but let's read this again together. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And and when using the word weak, he simply means someone not as far along as you, someone not as mature as you in the faith or still on the way. Paul did not want anything in his life to be a distraction or a stumbling block or a barrier to the gospel. And in his context, that meant taking money from the Corinthian church. And so in our context, what are some of the things we might need to give up our rights to so there aren't barriers or stumbling blocks for others who aren't as far along as us. We, we may need to give up our need to be right in order to relate rightly. And I'm not talking about double-line issues here. Steve did such a great job last week of saying there are issues that are biblically clear and we don't veer off of those. But if there are disputable issues, we may need to give up our need to be right in order to relate rightly. We may need to forego having a glass of wine if that's going to cause someone to question our faith or cause them to stumble. We may need to show respect even if we're not respected because it shows the way of Jesus. We may need to parent our kids in grace and truth even when we feel like calling them out because they have messed up so badly and are on our last nerve. Listen, we have the right to yell. We do, we have that right. And we have the right to be harsh, but would that create a stumbling block to the gospel or can we let go of our rights and model a better way? We may need to give up watching a favorite sporting event or a show on TV to spend time with our kids. We may need to give up being liked in order to do the right thing. We may need to serve even when we're not acknowledged for it. We may need to not see the R rated movie or watch the television show that uses inappropriate language or cont- contains graphic violence because that might send a mixed message to others, particularly our kids, and create a stumbling block or barrier to the gospel. I don't know what it is in your context, but where might you need to give up your rights for the good of others? And for the gospel. I mean, again, to go back to parenting, this is what the Lord has impressed upon me. I don't always need to be right with my kids. I don't always need to give them a consequence if they've learned a lesson. Listen, I'm all for consequences, but if they've learned a lesson in it, the Lord is showing me I can give up that right to relate better to them. I need to get better at this every day, but He keeps revealing where do I need to give up some rights? for the good of others, and for the gospel. We have these rights. We do. We can act on them. It's just not always beneficial to do so. And as I thought about this, you know, as I thought about Paul and the decision he made to not use his rights, I thought to myself, maybe this was easy for him. Maybe he didn't struggle with this. But Paul was a human being, and I have to imagine at certain points, Paul did struggle with entitlement. I wonder if at some point he thought, you know what? I deserve to get paid for the work I've done in Corinth. Man, I'm making tents and preaching the gospel. I deserve better than this. He's just like us. But rather than letting his rights lead to entitlement that would lead to pride, that would lead to an inability to be thankful and steal his joy, and rather than broken relationships and living a dissatisfied and unhappy life, Paul fought the temptation of entitlement. And in this passage, Paul gives us the secret to fighting entitlement in our own lives. If you look again at verses 16 to 18... Look look at that again in your Bibles. Paul writes this for when I preach the gospel I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher. Of the gospel. Do you notice that four times in three verses the word gospel is used? Repetition in the Bible shows significance, and in these verses, Paul communicates clearly that he is motivated by the good news of Jesus, and it led him to gratitude. He is so grateful for how Jesus changed his life that he fought entitlement by remembering the gospel with gratitude. It was his motivation to keep going. It was his motivation to not use his rights for his own benefit. The gospel was more important to him. And if we want to fight entitlement today, and it's not a question of if we will, but when we will, how do we fight it? We fight it the same way Paul did. If you're following in your notes, we fight entitlement by creating a habit of humble gratitude to the one who has given us what we don't deserve. We create a habit of humble gratitude to Jesus, the one who was entitled to everything but humbly gave up his rights for us. In the book of Philippians, Paul recorded a song of the early church in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was entitled to everything, but he humbly gave up his rights for us. And so we create a habit of humble gratitude by remembering who God is and what he's done for us by remembering that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for our sins and we didn't do anything to deserve it. We can't earn it. The habit of humble gratitude reminds us, it reminds us of this, right? If we want to get brutally honest, do you know what we're entitled to? We're entitled to death and hell. And Jesus offers us a new life, an eternal life that begins right now. And this is the free of charge gospel that sets us free from the grip of entitlement. There's nothing we can do to earn the good news of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God. We don't deserve it. All we can do is turn from our sin. That Fancy church words, repent. We turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus, and we want to follow him as our Savior and Lord, the leader of our life. And he can change everything in our lives and lead us to a better way of living. Paul had created a humble gratitude in his life. And in 1 Thessalonians, another book that he wrote in chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, Paul would tell us how important this habit is. Would you read this with me? These are the words of Paul also rejoice always pray continually give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus notice the pattern the habit of humble gratitude rejoice always pray continually give thanks in all circumstances not for all circumstances but in it's a pattern of humble gratitude And as we close, I want to share with you one gratitude practice that can change our lives. I really believe it can change our lives, because it points us to Jesus. I want to encourage you and challenge you, if you're following on your notes, to take the gratitude challenge. Take the gratitude challenge, and then leave your notes out for just a minute. We're not quite done. We're going to have you write on the back of those in just a second. I want to encourage and challenge you to take the gratitude challenge. A recent study by Harvard researcher, his name is Sean Acor, he found that people who wrote down five things they were grateful for, for three months, five things they were grateful for, for three months, not only experienced benefits in their mental health, but upon reviewing scans of their brain, all the participants showed changes in their brains. Giving thanks and creating a habit of gratitude rewired the neural pathways in the brain. I mean, is God amazing or what? I mean, could this be why the Bible tells us to remember and give thanks so often? On your notes, you can see how many verses I cited that say give thanks. Could it be that we have a God who knows how our brains work? And that gratitude and creating a habit of humble thanks changes our lives. So I want to invite you to take this gratitude practice, this gratitude challenge, and write five things you're thankful for every day this summer. You may want to do more than five. Maybe it's a morning, lunch, dinner, before you go to bed thing. You can overload on gratefulness. There's no law there. Parents, let me say this to you. As summer break is now here, this is a fantastic thing to do with your kids. Do this with your kids. You'll not only be teaching them the practice of gratitude and creating that habit, but you'll be fighting entitlement and pride in their lives as you do it. Great thing to do for the next three months. Creating a habit of gratitude is how we fight entitlement when temptation creeps in. We never want our services to just be information and a lot of times we can can talk a lot but we pray it leads to transformation. Before this service ends, we want to give you just a moment to create your first list of 5 things. Create your first list. This is the first day that can start the habit that can last all summer to creating a habit of humble gratitude. So in this busy world, we just want to give you this gift. Take a moment, start your first list in this gratitude challenge. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.